Well, good morning, Genesis. Whew, that was resounding. Thank you. Good to, good to see, good to see uh, all of you here. Oh, as always, it's very exciting uh, to have this opportunity uh, to join in with my church and see, see people from my community group, uh, see close friends that my wife and I have formed over the last few years of being here. Um, so <clears throat> each one of you is weird. Okay, each one of you is, <laughs> is unique. See, if I, if I look at, if, if I examined each one of you individually over time, it take a while, and I looked at you and I asked questions uh, about you, you'd have a certain history, you have a tradition, you have experience, you also have opinions, you also have preferences. All of those things are kind of the makeup of you. And then, have you ever met someone who just doesn't get you, right? All of those cool things, unique things that make you you, and somebody else is just like every single time. Uh, I know a lot of people who are like maybe in high school might think that's your parents, but you get, you'll pass that eventually. You love them more and more. Um, and, or, and there's the, the other side of that is, is you have people who really get you, who are like, who know you really well. And I know a lot of times this happens with like roommates, uh, maybe even uh, some, for some of you who went to college and you, and you had the really close roommate and 50 years down the road, even when you guys are really much older and you're still close and, you know, it's maybe just like a little wink and there's like a whole life that is explored or a head nod or a foot shake. And there, there's like little things that we all have with those people that really get us at a deep level. There's a symmetry, a chemistry between those kind of people. Well, what about God. I want to apply that understanding that we all kind of have, people that get us, people that don't get us. What about God? Which one is he? See, because we sing some pretty interesting things. We sing that of this God who is wonderfully, masterfully, holy, perfect, righteous. I mean, he's big. Can someone like that get me? Can he, does he understand what it's like to be us? Or is he completely misunderstand and have no clue what it's like to go through the things that you and I go through on a week-in and week-out basis. I want to I be right in the middle of that today. I want to wrestle with that tension. So if you have a Bible, <clears throat> turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're going to be, and we're going to get into chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's completely fine. We're also going to have uh, the passage uh, right behind me. So here are the word of the Lord this morning. This is Hebrews chapter 4 starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find... Uh, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
as he also says in another place, you were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's where, we're, that's where we are today. Now, it's a wonderful passage. It's a very important passage. The, the, the author here has taken a really sharp right turn. He's been building us up for the first four chapters or so, and now he's taking us in another direction, showing us something else, and he's going to hang out here for, we're going to be here actually as a church for a few weeks. Okay, now, with that said, it's a little confusing. When you read these 13 verses, I don't know about you, they're words, phrases, sentences, even a whole paragraph maybe, that just didn't make any sense. So what we have to do is be really careful. Let's walk through it carefully, look at it carefully, ask questions like, what is the author saying? Like, just on the page, what does it mean by what he's saying? And why is he saying it? Why is he saying the things that he, why is he defending this and that? We have to ask those kind of questions. And the, the one thing we can't forget this whole time, the one centerpiece that we're going to stick with, stick with the whole morning is that Jesus, the author is saying that Jesus is a great high priest. That's all nice and dandy, but what is a high priest? What does it mean to be a high priest? We've got to dig in here and see what the author is getting at. Okay, now he does help us out quite a bit. We're going to push pause on the first three verses. And we're going to jump into what does it mean to be a high priest? What does it look like to be a high priest in the nation of Israel? And he tells us at least a little bit in the first few verses of chapter 5. We read, for every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, so there's, there's a really packed, really carefully organized paragraph that the author has just given us. Now, and what he is saying is to be a high priest is to mediate and to sympathize. That's the way we can kind of summarize it for now. To be a high priest is to mediate and to sympathize. Okay, let's think about the first one. A high priest does something on your behalf. He does something for people that they cannot do for themselves. Now, in the nation of Israel, which is where he's kind of talking and, and is implicitly in, there is... There is a, a, a bull, maybe, or an, some, some sort of animal that is taken, sacrificed, killed for the sins of other people. Maybe it's not an animal. Maybe it's a, a, some grains from, from a field, depending on what you do. So it's either an animal or some grain that's burned or killed to cover someone else's sins. Now, what is, that shows us the need for a sacrificial system. Now, what do I mean by that? The world has gone awry. Things have gone wrong in the world, just in general, big picture. Things have gone wrong. People do things wrong. Doesn't take us too much, doesn't take too much investigation to, to realize that things in the world are maybe perhaps best summarized by the word by the word sin. In fact, we don't need to investigate anyone other than ourselves. We can look inward and see, yeah, I do things wrong. 
And so because of that, every human in the history of our planet needs a priest. Whoa, hang on a second now. What do you mean I need a priest? If a priest is someone who goes between two, a sinner and his God, we must realize that these two people can't come together by themselves. You have a God of perfection, a God who has a massively high standard of holiness, and we, as people who make mistakes, aren't able to reach that standard. So what this priest does is he meets us in the middle, and he covers our sins. Okay, so that's, what one, that's one thing a priest does. He mediates between two irreconcilable parties. He mediates. Second thing he does is he's able to sympathize because... He is just like us. He must be a human. He can't be like an angel or an animal. has to be somebody who knows what it's like to be a human, someone who knows what it's like to be a sinner. That's what verses 2 and 3 talk about. He can deal gently with sinners because he is one. He knows what it's like. He understands what it's like to be a sinner. Now, in high school, I, uh, I made a mistake. I made a few mistakes. <laughs> For all things, and we made a lot of mistakes, right? Uh, and one of the one of those for me was a bad relationship. Okay, I was in a relationship with a girl for a couple years, and uh, and it and ended up being very destructive, very, very bad, making decisions that I wish I hadn't made, doing things I wish I hadn't done, things that I can't take back. And eventually, my parents found out about it, along with my youth pastor. I was I grew up in a in a great church healthy church, and even the lead pastor found out about it as well. Very humbling experience, very humbling experience to, for all these people that are so close to you to know what you've done. And they, they decided to take me out of all ministry volunteering that I was doing. At the time, I was uh, leading middle school um, small groups, and I was in a music, t- I was part of the music team playing the piano. And they took me out of all of that, and they said, instead, we're going, we want you to come every Wednesday before youth group and sit with a youth pastor and just talk almost like a, a, a high, uh, some kind of counseling kind of thing going on there. And I was dreading it. I was absolutely dreading it. I, the last thing I wanted to do was walk into his office, sit across from him, and him just rip me up one side and down the other. That's the last thing I wanted to do. I already know it. I knew even at the moment of interaction, I knew I was doing something wrong. I didn't want somebody else to just point, 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 point. But I walk into his office, and I can remember this so clearly. Those first few weeks, he didn't point, 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 point. He told stories. He told stories of the things that he had done when he was my age. He told me about some of the mistakes that he made when he was my age. See what he did? He identified with me. Now, we still dealt with the sin. We still dealt with the choices that I made, but he identified. He said, yeah, I know what it's like to be you. I get you. That's what a high priest has to be. They have to be a go-between. They have to, they have to, to, to mediate a sinner versus a holy God, and then they also need to be, understand what it's like to be the sinner and therefore deal gently with that sinner. Overall, kind of what's being described here of a high priest of Israel. Now, remember, the whole idea that we had this morning in the forefront of our minds is that Jesus Christ is a great high priest. Now, what the author is about to do is make a comparison. 
He's going to make a very strong comparison between this high priest and Jesus, a great high priest. Okay, now we read about this. We read, we can pick up in verse 7, chapter 5, verse 7. And it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so we, the high priest of Israel is someone who can understand the people. He gets what it's like to be a person who sins. He was one like them, but now we have to ask the question, well, what about Jesus? I mean, not, not Jesus. He can't really know, because we, we hear already that he's one without sin. He is the perfect, eternal son of God. He seems to kind of be different than me. He's not exactly like me, is he? Maybe this Jesus, the one that we say, say is our priest and son of God, has absolutely no clue what it's like to be me, to struggle with the things that I struggle with. Maybe he doesn't get me. Does he even have any clue what it's like to be rejected by family? Does he have any clue what it's like to be rejected by friends? Does he have any idea what it's like to be lonely for a decade? Does he, does he know what it's like to be ridiculed? to be embarrassed? Does he know what it's like to be misunderstood? Does this great high priest know what it's like to be abused? Verbally abused, physically abused. Does he know what it's like to be tempted with sin? Statistics say a majority of people who are struggling with pornography happen to be male. Jesus also was a man, and we, you wondered, did, did Jesus, does Jesus struggle like, like men do with, with, with lust? Did he struggle with these things? Did, does he know what it's like to be me? Does he know what it's like to scream with sadness, and yet there's nothing that's coming out of your mouth, an internal anxiety that is so deep and cuts to the heart? Does he know what it's like to cry tears of agony? Yes. Yes. He knows all of those feelings, every single one of them. We might as well say he is the most sympathetic person that we have ever met. He understands those places. He knows what it's like to be in those deep and dark places. In fact, he knows them so well that he was in it. He died. Just like every other human will do, he even died. Not only is he a great high priest who takes away our sins, but he is one who understands that at the most fundamental level, he understands you. He can function perfectly as a great high priest because of his ability to sympathize with us, because of these emotions. How about the in and out of everyday life? Some of you are really struggling with work right now. Sherilyn just shared about it as well. It's really a struggle right now. 
Does he have any idea about the, the monotony of life? Does he know that just the average week and all the struggles that come along with it? Well, we know from his life that a vast majority, let's say 80 or 90% of his life, was spent as a handyman, carpenter, construction worker. Does he know what it's like? Yeah. He knows what it's like to be you right now as you think about tomorrow. Because he is fully and utterly human, he can be the source of our salvation. He wouldn't be able to save you if he didn't know what it was like to be you. And the same goes, he wouldn't be able to save my life if he didn't know what it was like to be me. He would be an ineffective priest. He is the source of our salvation. But now, notice, the text didn't say source of salvation. There's another word there. The source of eternal salvation. Whereas the high priest of Israel covers sins as a mediator, he covers those sins on a temporary basis. He covers those sins perhaps from sin to sin, like if it's a small one, or he covers it, what we call Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. He covers the sins of all the people once a year. That's the role of the priest. But even still, if he covers the sins for a year, it's still temporary. But Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' covering is not temporary. It is eternal. He can, com- he can completely forgive sins forever. His priesthood is one that never ends. He will never stop representing you from or with before the Father. And that's what it means when we have this name Melchizedek, right? <laughs> Sounds like somebody in the mafia or like somebody in a German board game or something. Uh, you just don't really know what's going on with his name. Well, he, he's, really, he's really tricky. Uh, we're going to spend a significant amount of time with him in two weeks. So just for now, let me just give us an idea of what, what uh, the author is talking about. And I'll summarize it by using just one verse in chapter 7. Okay, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this guy pops into the scene out of nowhere in the time of Abraham back in Genesis. And, and I'll really keep it short because this is going to be talked about in a little while. Um, and he kind of comes in and comes out of the scene mysteriously. He's, the, he's considered a high priest of, of the Most High God, and he, is the, he functions as a priest before there was a priesthood. And his he doesn't, we don't know if he dies. We don't know how he doesn't die according to the Jewish interpretation. So his priesthood never ends. And Jesus is being compared to this. This is what matters is that Melchizedek is just a foreshadowing. He's a resemblance of who Jesus is. Jesus is in this line. He's in this order of priests that will never stop being a priest. Aaron, a high priest of Israel, he dies. He's no longer a priest. His sons, they're high priests. They die. They're no longer priests. Jesus, he doesn't ever, ever, ever stop being your representative before our Father. That is really good news. That is really good news. Anyone else a sinner like me? And you have someone at the right hand of the Father who says, no, that's one of us. Jesus can be a source of eternal salvation forever because of who he is. He can sympathize, but he's also God's son. He is the ultimate mediator, the ultimate representative he can do things that the high priest of Israel can never do. Just like we've been saying in this entire series then, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the high priest of Israel. 
He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater and completely fulfills the Sabbath. And now we see Jesus is greater and exceeds the high priesthood of Israel. He is a better, more effective priest. And that's why the author starts this whole section with that paragraph at the beginning in chapter 4, 14 to 16. He is this ultimate and eternal high priest who has passed through the heavens, right? We read this in verse 14. It says, since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, this is an interesting word, confession. You and I, we think of uh, like kind of like Hollywood movies a little bit, right? We think of like a confession in a really dark room, and there's like for some reason smoke around, and you're confessing your entire life before a, a, a priest. That's not what we're talking about. A confession here is simply maybe a word that we would understand is profession. It's kind of it's very simple, similar, where we profess something. We are making a short statement about what we believe. It's a, a summary of the core beliefs of who we are. So there's a logical connection here. If he is a high priest who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, then stick, hold fast, cling to the things that you believe. This is probably what we would call a creed, right? This is uh, early Christians. These early Christians that were originally reading this probably could think of immediately some sort of short statement that summarized all of their beliefs. And he is saying to cling so ever, ever so tightly to that. And I, <clears throat> I thought of one of my uh, community group friends um, when I thought about what does it mean to really hold fast or uh, to cling tightly to someone. And a good a friend of mine, Tony, he's, he's here today, and he, um, he's a big Patriots fan, and his wife happens to be a Bills fan. He won that war, um, and just messing with you guys, um, and I love it. It's really fun. Uh, five, six years ago, you guys, I don't know, for anyone who was a, is a, a Patriots fan, you remember this safety, Rodney Harrison, right? He was a, he's actually a telecaster now, and he's, he was like this, he was just a dangerous guy in the middle of the field. If you're the opponent, and, you, and your quarterback throws something over the middle, and your receiver, you, you just don't want to be hit by Rodney Harrison. He's just a really hard hitter before all these rules that make sure you're not a hard hitter anymore. He, he, got, he retired before any of that happened. And so he's, a, I mean, he was, that's what it means to hold fast to this confession, to like really surround it, really just almost like every amount of energy that you can possibly gather, put it towards keeping the faith. Stick everything you've got. If he's really there, if he's really done all of the stuff he's done, don't back away from what you believe. And Jesus did this himself. This is what 5, 7 to 10 really talked about. He never wavered from the Father's agenda. He may have cried loudly in that garden before he was crucified. Not my will, but your will be done. He stuck to the Father's agenda. So just like him, as he struggled, as he suffered... He remained faithful, so ought when we struggle and suffer to remain faithful. We continue in verse 15 of chapter 4, and it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's kind of a, a summary statement of what we've been walking through all morning is that Jesus is the sympathetic one who has experienced what we've experienced. He is one who can identify us, but also he, he's one of a kind because there's these three words 
that save us from eternal damnation, yet without sin. He was sinless while we have been sinful. And the great news for us is that his sinless obedience covers over our sinful disobedience. He covers our sin in a way that you and I cannot cover for ourselves. That's why he is our mediator, our priest. That means that we can draw near with confidence. What really, really good news. When we are tempted to go against our confession, when we are tempted to abandon the truth, this passage tells us not to run from God, but exactly the opposite, to run toward God. That's why that second song we sing, sang today is, is wonderful. In the bridge we sing, no other name but Jesus, Jesus. And so we run into his arms. If Jesus really is who he said he is and he's really done what he said he's done, then run to him. Run to the loving arms of a father. So as we look at all 13 verses as best as we can, uh, we look at what, how, what, what is the author really getting at? What is he saying for us uh, in this culture and in our culture today? It might sound something like this. Jesus motivates our faith, our faithfulness. Jesus motivates our faith and authorizes our place before God. Motivates our faith and he authorizes our place before God. God. So the, so the question, the natural question that has to come with, with this is, so what? So what? Okay, so he motivates faith and he authorizes our place. What does that look like this week? What does that look like as a way of life? Well, first of all, just like the author has encouraged his audience, so I encourage you, my, my fellow believers in Christ, remain faithful. Remain faithful faithful to be a christian to believe the things that we do it's not popular in your town and it's not popular at your workplace it's not popular in the state it's not popular in new england it's not pop it's not popular in the united states that's gone it's no longer popular to believe and cling to the things that you cling to However, so close-minded of you that you might say that Jesus is not only Lord, but the only one. He is the only Lord, the only King. That's very exclusive of you. And in the midst of social and cultural pressures, the danger is, maybe they're right. Maybe I am too close-minded. Let me just open the door a little bit more. Maybe I don't need to really aggressively seek after that coworker who I've been working with for the last four years. I don't want to offend them. I don't want them to think what, that, that what I'm doing is restrictive or it's not. Uh, I, I don't want them to be, I don't want them to, to, to not be my friend anymore. So we distance and we, we say, yeah, Christ is Lord on Sundays, but he's not Lord enough, I guess. Some people are saying, some people who even claim to be Christians are saying, it's time to let go of the Bible. That was written 2,000 years ago. That's mightily irrelevant for our times. If you want to be relevant in our culture, say sayonara to the Bible. But this author, this pastor, is telling us exactly the opposite. 
if Jesus is our great high priest, then we need to cling ever so tightly to our confession. Okay, so the first thing, remain faithful. Second thing, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor and presence. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor and presence. Jesus is the one who has sacrificed for our sins. That's what we've been talking about all morning. He alone is our high priest. Only he can do that. But when I think about my own life, I'm literally thinking about my experiences and my rhythms, I often equate the amount of time that I spend with God, like quiet times is what we call it, or devotional. I often equate that as like little salvation coins. Let me make sure I earn my place before the king. Let me do stuff to make sure that he, hey, hey, God, I read half of Genesis this morning. Do you see? Do you see that? That's not the way Christianity works. Has anyone else done this? We, we have forgotten what by faith means. You are eternally accepted, eternally mediated for because of your faith, not because of anything you're doing. Stop trying to impress God. There's only one that ever impressed him, and it was his son. And that son covers you with his obedience and with his perfection. And now what does God say? You are obedient, and you are perfect because of what my son has done on your behalf. We will never be able to satisfy the holy and righteous demands of God. They're way, way above our reach. But Jesus reached those standards. He reached those heights. And he welcomes you in. There's a, an old document of the church from the 17th century, and it asks a question. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let the weight lift off your shoulders, please. You're a son. You're a daughter for God. He looks at you. He looks at me. And he says, clean. When we look at ourselves, we see dirt. But he sees clean. And that is enough. That is enough. Now, if that is true, one of the biggest tragedies, is if we are clean before God, if we are authorized to go to him, if we are welcomed into his throne room, the biggest tragedy possible is to not do that. We know we can't earn his favor. We know that Jesus is our high priest who represents us but it's still really easy to say that we want God's help in things just to say it and then proceed to take control ourselves anyway. You see, the people who were reading this for the first time, they were facing serious opposition. To say Christ is Lord puts chains on your wrists. It puts a knife into your belly. That's serious opposition. But he's saying, in the midst of all of that, hold fast. And draw near to him in that moment of need that you might receive mercy and find grace. And the same goes for us. In those moments where your faith is shaken, 
rattling. In those moments where God doesn't even seem to exist. Where are you, God? In those moments when you think God doesn't care about you or your family or the situation you're going through. Remember, there has been a great high priest who has been in your place. He knows where you are. He knows where you've been. Running to the arms of God is a privilege that we have, and yet it's a privilege that we so often forsake. Let us remember that the author of Hebrews is pushing us to. Jesus, as our high priest, motivates our faith and authorizes our place before.